All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup on Bell Curve. You got Michaels one and two, Yano and Miles, our six men. Well, sports reference. You think, uh, you, think Vance getting, you think Vance is getting nervous? Two back-to-back <laughs> weeks, sitting him out, benched him. Well, I, w- I would be if I was him. I would be too. Yeah. Yeah. Six man year award right here, at the very least, yeah. you know. Personally, I don't know if I'm going to accept Vance back on this podcast if he has any hair. I think he's got to go bald. He's got that's how he's got to prove himself. <laughs> now we we miss you, Vance. Vance is representing over in over in Japan. So, um, why well, right, anything about his uh, his his Japan trip? Any any alpha from uh, the other side? Uh, only stuff I've heard so far is that uh, crypto is uh, pervasive in Asia, <clears throat> and a lot more so integrated into social applications and just more. Uh, yeah, it, it seems to be something that is more embraced positively over there, uh, which I think is a, a really good sign. Hmm. Yeah, he said he paid for his sushi with ETH. Exactly. Why he would spend his ETH in a time like this, I do not know, but... Not a true believer. <laughs> not a true believer. Yeah. Um, but... All right, let's, let's get into some of these stories. So I want to talk, uh, maybe we can kick this off just talking about Uniswap and their wallet being finally available on uh, the Apple App Store. So this was following a month of review by Apple. Uniswap's mobile app has finally secured its place in the iOS App Store. Um, It's now available for users in most countries, uh, which includes the United States, according to a tweet from Uniswap Labs on Thursday. And uh, Uniswap has assured people that they're going to continue to launch in other countries as soon as uh, Apple lets them. So in addition to allowing swaps on the Ethereum mainnet, Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism, users will also be able to track their NFT collections and purchase crypto with debit cards through MoonPay, uh, which was an integration which was actually rolled out, I guess, last December. That's pretty cool. That solves a big uh, big onboarding problem. But um, Miles, I-, I know you actually uh, were guinea pig and actually installed the wallet yourself and have some some thoughts. But before we do that, uh, Michael, I think on one of the, the earlier bell curves we were talking about the that kind of the restriction um that crypto apps not being able to get distributed on the apple app store app so what are your sort of thoughts on the uniswap mobile wallet making its way through yeah um so historically apple has been incredibly difficult when anything ever touches crypto involved with an app that's under review by their app store review process um and just as context, uh, you know, the the review process is not something that's just there for any sort of crypto app it Historically, there's been um, back and forth with major applications like Uber. Uh, I know that they got in trouble for some of the things that they've done. Um, and really what the the review process represents for any app that's trying to get into the App Store is a, a walled garden approach where they are the gatekeepers. They get to decide who's in there, who's not. And they effectively set the rules. When Apple has the, the App Store review guidelines, which are very infrequently updated and and a lot of people would probably say that they're antiquated in a lot of ways. The way to think about them isn't a constitution that says, here are all the rules, here's all, here's how we're going to be dealing with these different types of applications into perpetuity. Think of them as like an auto-append list of rules that they decide kind of 
ad hoc as they see new applications. Um, and so earlier, uh, I think it was in October or November, maybe they came out with, um, kind of a general perspective on, uh, specifically NFTs where they said that NFTs, when you're purchasing an NFT in an application would have to go through IAP, which is their in-app purchase mechanism. Um, a lot of people, uh, I'd say the, you, you had kind of polar perspectives on this, uh, adjustment where, you had some people who said, what the heck, IAP is great, but what is implicit within IAP is that they, Apple, charges 30% to the seller of anything that goes through IAP. So if you're selling uh, an NFT, for instance, which is considered digital content, Apple wants their 30%. Obviously, if you're selling anything in a secondary transaction, it's going to be exceedingly difficult to have 30% be uh, you know, a take rate effectively that the seller uh, would have to uh, abide by by using this mechanism. Um, and, and so this is this is definitely, um, you know, for NFTs and it's specific to, to that one category of purchasing, um, but it did show a positive trajectory in just Apple being supportive and having rules around crypto writ large. Um, and so that was kind of the other perspective. And, and some people said, hey, we're used to, you know, game developers are used to paying 30% for any digital content that's sold within the application. And in fact, the the fact that you get hundreds of millions of credit cards on file using IAP is actually more of a benefit than having to pay the 30%. The one thing that is, you know, of note here is that because I, I believe, you know, and I haven't played around with it. So Miles, I'm curious to hear your perspectives. Uniswap, I believe, is going to leverage a non-custodial wallet, and there's a difference between what Apple considers to be a convertible virtual currency like Ethereum um, versus what they would consider to be digital content in NFT. And that that's the reason why MoonPay is um, you know the the payment provider. They have to whoever the payment provider is has to have money transmitter licenses to be able to facilitate transactions with convertible virtual currencies. Um, but in doing so, convertible virtual currencies are explicitly outside the scope of IAP. And it's not something that Apple will support. And so you won't have to pay the 30% fees, but it's only supported assets that Apple will be able to, uh, or that MoonPay uh, supports that you'll be able to use in those apps. Once you get the assets into the app, that's when you can swap them around. But you know, you can imagine if you want to buy something, you know, that's maybe not supported directly by MoonPay, the, the, the process would go USD to Ethereum, Ethereum to whatever that asset is. You know, the user experience is clunky to say to say the least. Um, but I do think that generally, the recognition of Apple having an app that's going to be as widely used as Uniswap is a is a really big deal. Um, and you know, I'm I'm sure it'll get better over time. But the biggest thing that can happen for an app developer is to get approved. It's a lot harder to get approved than it is to, you know, have changes that go on once you're approved in, in the app store, because it's more of a conversation, less a binary go, no go. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, honestly, Miles, I'd be curious to get your take of like what the UI UX was like, um, just because, you know, on the one hand, I think, you know, we've talked on this podcast before about like, I know I'm, I was in the minority when I voiced this, but that it's a big deal that you can now buy in custody, at least Bitcoin, uh, and I think Ether Ethereum as well on Fidelity. So it does seem like getting access to distribution that the App Store provides is definitely a huge, a huge boon. Um, so I think on, in that sense, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. But Miles, I would love to get your understanding of like, you know, what you thought about the user experience. 
Yeah, absolutely. And maybe just to touch on one thing, uh, last thing on, on Michael's point, you know, I'd be very interested to hear like what the discussions in the past month have sounded like between, you know, the Uniswap Labs teams and Apple, because it sounded like they were just getting stonewalled. You know, there was basically radio silence for a long time. Um, it almost reminded me of, you know, Coinbase shouting into the void for, you know, the SEC to tell them what to do um, in order to be okay. But yeah, I think maybe at some point we'll 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 hear how those conversations went. Very well, interesting. It does seem like Miles, like there there were some changes. Do you remember when they maybe several months ago or three or four months ago talked about this app coming out and there were like NFTs inside the app? There was a way to import private keys. There was uh, they talked about support for for multi chain. I did notice that there's no support for multi chain. No way to import a, a private key. I th I think I haven't actually used it. Um, and then I don't think there were NFTs inside the app. Um, there, are, there are, yeah, uh, no. there are. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as I can tell, it is, you know, they did put out what they advertised. Like I can, okay. You have one. Okay. Then I'm, I'm wrong. I was thinking yeah. maybe they pulled it like basically right. pulled back, did a preliminary version to kind of get their foot in the door, but okay. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Hey everyone. Exciting announcement here from the Blockworks podcast network. We are hiring two podcast hosts to build a show with us called Lightspeed. TLDR of Lightspeed is that it is a show for builders, tinkerers, and lovers of technology. It's a callback to the heyday of Silicon Valley where great tech was built in garages, not in corporate fortresses, and was truly the Wild West. Lightspeed is an exploration of crypto from the perspective of a builder and an engineer who's designing for scale and is interested in onboarding the next billion users into crypto. If this show sounds exciting to you, you have a background in podcast hosting or content creation, go to the careers page of BlockWorks. That's blockworks.co slash careers. I've also linked it in the show notes here. You can just click there. It'll take you right to the page. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm Mike Ippolito underscore. You can just slide right into my DMs and we'll set up some time to talk. Would love to hear from you. We are super, super excited about this show. My overall, you know, high level take is that it, it is, it's a decent V1. Um, if I had to have like a criticism, I would say that, you know, it's, it doesn't provide a better experience than existing wallets or sophisticated crypto native users. Um, but it also, you know, uh, that's one side of the spectrum, but it also doesn't necessarily, you know, simplify the experience enough for, you know, brand new crypto users. Um, I think that latter category is the intended audience that they're going for with this wallet. Um, they know sophisticated crypto users can, you know, are very comfortable, you know, interacting either directly with the protocol or on the UI. Um, and so this is going after retail, right? And, and mainstream retail that might have been using a, a Coinbase or an FTX in the last cycle. Um, and so that's basically who, that's the perspective of, you know, uh, the, the user I took as I tried to onboard, um, and yeah, I guess some high level thoughts, I would say wallet creation is very easy. Um, you know, you could use an iCloud backup and Google social auth login to create a, you know, um, a wallet, not have to remember, you know, back up your keys. Um, if you want to, the fiat on-ramp process is, is pretty straightforward and simple. Um, you know, it took a couple minutes for USDC to show up in my actual account balance. Um, but I would say there's a few big pain points if I was, you know, a, a brand new crypto user um, who is trying this out for the first time. And I would say that, you know, when you're onboarding from MoonPay, it gives you, you know, all these different networks, right? So Ethereum, Optimism, Arbitrum, Polygon, and each token has four different versions of it, right? That you can on, on ramp to. And so I'd, 
you know, first be like, what the hell are all these networks? Um, and why is there four different versions of every token? I have no idea what this means. Like, <laughs> is there something I should know about if I onboard to optimism? Is that, you know, does that have features that Arbitrum doesn't have, or does it have less features than Ethereum has? Um, so there's not much of an education there. Yeah. Miles, what would you do? Would you default just to one network, but then give people the option to do others like switch? Yeah, I, I, maybe I'll, I'll get to that at the end because I think it's, it's related to the other pain points. Um, and I think, you know, so I just chose USDC and, and optimism. Um, and it did show up my wallet, you know, a few minutes later, which is great. Um, but now, okay, I want to go swap that for another token. Let's say, you know, my friend said, Hey, you should buy this you know, Lido token. Uh, it's going to, it's going to moon. And so I say, okay, let's look for Lido. Uh, you know, fortunately Lido was in the optimism asset list, but I noticed that the optimism asset list is a lot smaller than the Ethereum asset list. You know, a brand new crypto user might not know why. Right. Um, but okay, great. I've got, you know, USDC and I want to swap to Lido. Um, and now it's telling me that I don't have enough ETH in my wallet and, uh, to pay for, to pay for the transaction fees. And, you know, as a new user, I'd be like, what, uh, what does that mean? That's annoying. Okay. Now I have to go, let's go swap for some ETH so I can pay that these tra transaction fees. And again, you know, don't have enough ETH to make that swap. Right. So now I'm stuck going back to square one with the fiat on ramp and saying, okay, now I need to, you know, on ramp fiat directly to ETH. So I have some gas to spend. Um, and that part wasn't clear to me. And so I think that there are like two, two main things that would make this, you know, uh, really, really powerful for, for, for mainstream user. First, I think that, you know, the, you need to abstract away all these networks and, and different types of assets. And so I would say, you know, if there could just be one asset, one, you know, version of every asset, um, that shows up to the user and you don't have any sort of differentiation about networks. Um, and then you basically just say, if a user wants to swap from USD to Lido, this, you know, runs through some sort of like bridge Dex aggregator that looks at all the Unis the Uniswap markets, finds you, you know, the most efficient path to buy that based off of gas fees and liquidity and slippage and all that good stuff. Um, and then I have it in my wallet and whether that's, you know, Lido sitting on optimism or Lido sitting on Arbitrum or L1, you know, I, I don't really care. I have, I have exposure to Lido now. Like I got what I wanted. Um, and then two, and I think this kind of, you know, leads into a bigger conversation, but with count abstraction, you know, there's a lot of things that would make this a lot, uh, this experience a lot more frictionless, you know, first of all, get rid of gas fees. Like I, <laughs> going back to square one, if I was a new user, I would have probably churned right there. I don't want to go through that again. Um, so pay gas fees on behalf of users. I think that's more than reasonable. Um, and you also have, you know more secure account recovery methods than, than maybe this, this EOA path, um, using the iCloud backup and you can split keys and all that good stuff too. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that, those are the two, the two main things that I would say to take this to the next level, you know, when you go in your Coinbase wallet, right, it doesn't tell you which network, you know, of which version network version of, of every asset you want to buy. Right. Um, and I just don't, I, so, so I, I worry that V1, it's a great start, but it's kind of in no man's land where it's not necessarily catering to, you know, the sophisticated crypto native users, but it's, you know, and it, it's not trying to frankly, um, but it needs to, 
you know, a, a couple more improvements to really compete with like a centralized exchange app for, for, for newbies, right? Folks that have not ever tried this before. Um, so that's my, that's my, that's my product review. Miles, why do you think that, um, this is just for, why do you say that they're really focusing on like new, new folks here? Cause my understanding, like when I think about this product, I don't think that like a new user to crypto who owns no Bitcoin and no ETH, like, I don't think they're going direct to Uniswap here. Um, this, this yeah. product feels like for the four of us where you still, we, the four of us been in crypto for a while, own crypto, still don't have a mobile experience, like a crypto native mobile experience. Um, and like, I've wanted to use the Met, like the MetaMask app for years. It's just God awful. Um, yeah. like that's who I thought this product would be for. That's, that's fair. I think the main objective is to capture retail flow with this, with this app. Right. That's yeah. what I was, yeah. Should look what? like Robin Hood. Right. It's like, yeah. that. Yeah. that. It does. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Whether that's, whether that's retail flow, that is, you know, an existing crypto user, that's a small, relatively small bubble. Right. And then whether it's retail flow, that's maybe just a centralized exchange user, you know, that's at least a hundred million people right there. So that's a much bigger audience. Maybe this is their onboarding, you know, experience. Um, and then there's like, you know, the, the, the folks that have never tried anything to, you know, crypto related before. And to your point, like very, don't don't see them going straight to this Uniswap app. Um, but part of part of me wonders <clears throat> to go back to one of the things you're saying, Miles, is just like what the conversations were. And you know, you submit an application, they assigned you a reviewer, and then you start the conversation with that reviewer to basically say, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's the things you need to change. Like it, it is a dialogue at to a certain extent. Um, I would wonder if part of that dialogue was this cannot be a custodial experience in the same way that. You know, app, uh, it, Apple is preventing in a lot of ways um, uh, uh, the Coinbase application and or the Coinbase wallet application, um, which you know they they talked about. Um, if they have to li list all the different networks, if it has to be a separate wallet where you can't import your private keys, like I, I wonder if these are limitations. And this is kind of what I you know having deal dealt with the, the App Store review team a few times. I wonder if that's just like limitations that they said, okay, you want to have this? This is what we need. And I, I also think, you know, the other thing too, just as a, a blanket statement on app store reviews is, it, like I said, it's, it's an auto append list of all the different rules and it's ever increasing, never decreasing, yeah. but it's also not uh, suggestive that because Uniswap got in with this particular format, that they are able to then build a playbook around this and all the other applications that want app store, uh, you know, app store approval are going to have to go the same route and build the same way as Uniswap. It is really a specific use case by use case for um, for each of the different applications that are going through the process. So doesn't mean like because Uniswap got in, it's, you know, we now have a playbook for how to get every other app in. It's really just like because Uniswap got in, this is a big signal that it, maybe there's an open dialogue that could be at. Yeah. And, and you know, similar to the staking um, dialogue on the regulatory side, you know, I think that the the, the general direction that we're getting now is like the more of just a, you know, pass through you are, or like, you know, a, a way to interact with the protocol rather than, you know, making the experience, you know, doing things, you know, like outside of the protocol to make the experience better or smoother, you know, that protects you a little bit, but I, I would, it would be, you know, too bad if that was actually stopping them from like doing things that, you know, 
don't necessarily make this a custodial app. Like I think if you put in like a Dex bridge aggregator, something like a socket network behind the scenes here, uh, I don't, it's, it's still not custodial, right? You're just abstracting the UX complexity away a little bit, right? Um, but if the Apple store is saying, you know, it has to be kind of wonky and complicated because like, that's what a true, you know, just pass through to like interact with the protocol looks should look like then you know we're in we're in a tough spot but account abstraction also does you know help a lot with 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 at least some of these pain points um you know we a lot of people focus especially in crypto right like it's very easy to be like hey apple's trying to throttle us and and all this stuff and people focus on the 30 percent take rate that apple takes in their app store but the truth is from apple's perspective that they're trying to you know when when apps originally you know started to get launched there were tons of scams and really poor user experiences and part of the reason why apple has that append only list is to protect users right like they view when people go to the app store apple wants you to be able to trust that you're not going to get scammed and that your experience is generally going to be relatively good so to be honest with you i can actually sort of if this is what the conversation sounded like i could definitely see it from apple's perspective that like hey guys like people lose their private keys all the time it's an insane user experience like we don't want the liability of our brand or this isn't the the experience that we want our users to have i could be wrong just wanted to call it out but i'm pretty sure it did give me the option either to create a new wallet or import um you you can some yeah you can and and miles could you sign up with um with like your with an email address or yeah yeah that's it's it's i because i spun up a new wallet and then chose you know the most web to path to to razor on board through that um that you know it was it was fairly easy it was basically you know uh sending your you know choosing a google account um mm. and you know doing a two-step verification there and then you know it's it's I, I think i had to select you know back up your keys with icloud or something like that um which i'm sure you know. so how does this little thing get through i just looked this up this is the only Uniswap app in the App Store right now. It's a fake. It's a that's a scam. Yeah, you have to you have to actually like click their the link of the mm-hmm. from their Twitter post. Yeah, Apple. That 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 frankly is just like a App Store. Uh, it's so new that it hasn't been picked up by yeah. like the search algorithms yet. Um, that happens a lot though. Um, I, I mean, so Mike, I totally agree with all all of what you were saying. I I do think that. Um, I mean, my personal perspective, just broadly, not on on like apps uh, specifically, is that um, it did start off as a form of protection to make sure that the quality of the apps that are in the app store is as high as possible. I, I do think, and you know, there are a number of lawsuits ongoing currently that uh, contend that Apple is extracting monopolistic power with its thirty percent. Um, so yeah, I, I I agree with that. The intention probably started off to make sure that the quality bar was high, but at this point, you know, it, it, there is no level of competition. There's no opportunity unless you're in a specific category uh, where they don't want to support their payment method, um, where they force you to use thirty percent fee. It's it's always a little bit of both. You know, I was just I people tend to view it in binary, but usually there is like a good reason for that being the case and then there's probably a more extractive reason and they can both be true i mean and so the fact that i think is the biggest one is when you are using apple iap to make purchases within your app 
they're charging 30% whenever someone's making a purchase. It's only for digital content. So something that effectively has a zero marginal cost to produce. And therefore they feel like 30% is fair. Um, but also they have hundreds of millions of credit cards and people on the other side of that. So not only are they just saying, hey, we're going to sit, sit right here in the middle and charge 30%. We're also going to create the ability for the demand side to just easily onboard and seamlessly pay for things. So I, I do think that there is a benefit to it in certain situations. Um, but once again, when you have uh, selling of digital content, in the case of crypto, it's NFTs. When you're selling convertible virtual currencies like ETH and USDC, it, it doesn't have to go through IFB. That's where MoonPay steps in. Um, I also have had, I don't know if you guys have used MoonPay. Miles, one question I was going to ask you is, um, did you have you previously used MoonPay and did you have a track record with them? Or Okay, the first, yeah. No, I did. Uh, Yes, and then a uh, picture, you know, my ID and do like a little liveness check, you know, all that good stuff. Yep, exactly. Um, and and it's debit card only, um, and the auth rates on those, depending on what your bank rate, it would, depending on what your bank is, um, you know, the auth rates are, are, you know, I've seen somewhere in like the sixty to seventy percent, so thirty to forty percent of those transactions aren't even going through. Wow. I did see that. Yeah. It said if you use a credit card, there's, or if you use a debit card, there's a 35% greater chance. Right. Of true. What right. That? Okay. No point out. Um, I, I will say though, even though it, uh, I think all these are really fair criticisms, uh, Miles, is that, you know, good on Uniswap for doing this, right? Like I think, you know, historically the journey for people going on chain has been having their first experience be with a centralized exchange and then staying there for like a long time. And then kind of migrating to on-chain and this is i think the first like meaningful shot that we've had at just onboarding people directly onto being uh on-chain which i think is definitely a step in the right direction 100 agree one, one of the things that i think is going to be really interesting to see is uh how does uniswap the protocol interface with uniswap the wallet and what's the business model respectively for each of those and stakeholders is the team now moving over into uniswap you know the wallet and focusing on that uh, are they going to be charging an additional fee on top of that and, and have it be a centralized business? You know, that was kind of, you know, what people were talking about when they raised all that money. Um, it, it will be interesting to see like how you can have centralized businesses that are spawned out of decentralized protocols that then are extracting additional rent on top of the protocols that they originally built. Um, I, I think that part is going to be really fascinating to see if you know, the competition drives that down or if they're able to build a beachhead with customers to be able to have a user retail flow actually, you know, derive value for Uniswap, the wallet. Uh, yeah. yeah. Going to be interesting. You know, I, th I think it's a, you can make a similar like analogy to, to the way that Ethereum has kind of scaled and developed, you know, I think Uniswap, similar to Ethereum L1, you keep the protocol, you know, as conservative as possible. Um, and you, you know, there's very little that they're doing, you know, at the protocol level, they just kind of upgrade right to another version every couple of years. Um, and you drive the complexity and the, the really complex stuff that's going to help you scale and get distribution, you know, up the stack basically. And in this case, you know, it's out of governance, but you know, I would say like the, the Ethereum analogy is where, you know, you're seeing the rollups and all of the account abstractions starting, you know, on the, up that's far away from the L1 as possible and the MEV supply chain. Um, and so I think that that's kind of the, the strategy here. And frankly, I mean, it's a lot easier to, to, to build, you know, sort of these products, um, 
outside of the scope of governance. And, and I think that that's, that's the main thing here. I, I would say, you know, my, my other observation, um, is that I think it's, they're going for less of, you know, a, a wallet, but more of like this, you know, app or, or super app that has a wallet attached to it. Right. I don't think they want to like make people think that they're downloading a wallet. I think eventually they'll show up and they'll see like, okay, here's, you know, a portfolio of different, uh, you know, things mm -hmm. I can do and apps I can use and whether or not they skim, you know, something off the top or even, you know, implement like an order flow, uh, auction sort of, sort of model here. Um, and that, that, that to me would make a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, I think that only accrues directly back to Uniswap labs in terms of the revenue, but the volume, if they're successful, right. Drives value to Uniswap protocol. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's, it's almost like if they had optimized in their UX for retail users and you're producing a bunch of dumb order flow, that'd be pretty good timing. If order flow auctions become more and more prevalent, right? That'd be an extremely good revenue model. Although again, just to like take the other side of this, if I were designing the UX for this wallet, one of the examples that would be burned into my brain is Coinbase's launch of their NFT platform, which was a pretty big flop. And like, think about all the takes after that, which was like, all you had to do was replicate the design of OpenSea and you would have been golden, you know? And instead they tried to make it more web 2 -y. And who knows, you know, this is probably a challenge that people on the internet might remember. I just wasn't around, but there's probably a challenging period of time where the users that existed were like very techie users, right? Who knew how to like use the browser and stuff like that. And eventually they had to make the transition to mainstream, but I'm sure there was a really tough period of time uh, where, you know, UX and UI people were sort of stuck in the middle. But I have a, Miles, I had a, I had a question for you actually that was, um, so one of the maybe challenges, maybe opportunities in between Uniswap Labs and Uniswap, the, the DAO, is that you've got two different instruments, you know, with appreciation there. There is like, you need the token and then there's Uniswap Labs equity. Mm -hmm. So in an ideal world, you mentioned in account abstraction where it's a no brainer, right? For the protocols to pay for gas fees. Now, where would they, like, I would assume the way that would, that Uniswap would afford to do that, right? It wouldn't be a permanent thing, but they would do it for some period of time. From Uni, the token, right? They would sell off some of their treasury in Uni token, or no? You think they would, it would come from Uniswap Labs? Yeah, I think I, I could be wrong, and it, it, you know, this hasn't been implemented on one of the rollups yet. Um, but I, I do get the sense that you know Uniswap Labs would basically just like, you know, fund this paymaster that that provides you know that like pays gas on behalf of users like I, I honestly think that that's a good you know potentially a good investment a good like positive roi for them like just Remus, like can you explain that can you say more yeah so it, it's basically with with in the you know imagine this is on a roll-up with you know account abstraction and you've got these are all you know uh four three three seven transactions instead of regular transactions um so without going into it too much, this will basically run through its own mempool, right? That sits above kind of the, the main execution environment and the transactions are bundled and then, and relayed, um, over to basically a, a paymaster. Um, and I believe that you can say, you know, set the parameters of the paymaster, um, 
so that you know any address that has been identified as a Uniswap wallet address um, is you know eligible to be okay. I'll pay gas for you, and then you know, let's say another four three three seven transaction comes in that's not from you know Uniswap uh, wallet, then they would have to pay for their own gas. I could be could be wrong. Really, honestly, just started thinking about this like as we were as I was testing it out today. Um, but to me, that sounds like something that would likely come from Uniswap Labs. I think they could fund basically a gas account. Uh, Especially if it's on, if you default to an L2. Right. And that becomes the default location for where these assets as they're put in from USD originate uh, in the application itself. I mean, I I think that that, well, obviously would alleviate a lot of the user onboarding flow for, for the archetype of user that you were pretending to be Miles. And uh, honestly would probably be a really interesting um, test just to see, you know, what account abstraction actually can bring in terms of user growth. Uh, and there, there are plenty of other roadblocks in the in the onboarding flows, as we discussed, but I think that that would be a huge one, uh, especially for someone who's never been in crypto before. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, I think the um, motivation to or I guess the incentives to vertically integrate up the stack into your own wallet, you know, are, are really, really powerful. Um, you're, you know, just cementing that relationship with the user by having them, you know, also be not only the app you interact with, but the touch point to inter- interact with the app. Um, and I think that, you know, prior to account abstraction and, and still today, because we've got probably a year until account abstraction is really widely implemented, um, it was very few apps that had the amount of leverage uh, over their users and the network itself to say, you know, we're going to build an EOA wallet and put people like through this, you know, experience. Um, and Uniswap's one of them. OpenSea is the other one. Um, and you know, they've. It's awesome to see like what the first version of this could look like with uh, with the Uni wallet. But I think that you know, this idea of like headless wallets uh, that is enabled with account abstraction. Um, or another way of framing it is like embedded wallets, uh, which is, is possible. Um, it's going to open this, you know, vertical integration or vertical expansion up to you know a lot of different apps um, that that don't have that same level of leverage. And just to uh, piggyback on that concept, uh, one of the dominant conversations that at least we're having with games, and you know, games have um, probably. The potential to be, you know, one of the largest, and I think historically they also have been the largest N in terms of users per application uh, on chain. And as more games launch, I think we'll be able to see more of that on chain. But a lot of those users are not paying customers; they're they're free to play users that come in. And you know, if there is an actual uh, cost to playing, maybe they wouldn't come in, maybe they wouldn't convert. But that's probably the dominant narrative right now, which is, you know, how do we get rid of what they call the wallet wall? How do we have somebody sign up for this game? There's a wallet that's created on the back end. It's pre-funded by the company that's building the game itself. If there are any on-chain transactions that are abstracted away from the user and paid, the gas is paid on behalf of the company itself. Um, and, I, and I think that that's going to be kind of generally how these consumer applications grow and, and launch and scale. Um, and then it just becomes a question of like, how long are you willing to subsidize the gas fees for a user who doesn't pay? Uh, and, and I, like it's going to make the the point of monetization for these users be at different levels than what we've seen for pre- previous games or previous applications, just because there is this operating cost, this you know the um, 
this cost associated with every single user that comes on chain. Um, so it, it's going to be really interesting, but that's a dominant conversation that's happening in the DMZ ecosystem right now. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it's a, you know, a future cost of revenue line item for, for right. most people, right? Um, so retention and an acquisition. You know what else is it, it just something that we've talked about in previous episodes is Coinbase's wallet as a service offering as well. So now you might get this super potent combination of account abstraction happening at the same time that Coinbase will whitelist a wallet for you. And it just solves two of these enormous pain points uh, to the point where app developers can focus on building their applications that people actually want to use. And Miles, you and I talked a lot about the the fappening, which is the the fat fat happening. Um, interesting title for a Z Prime uh, article, but. It's a it's a, it's the idea that there could be these gigantic fat apps in in crypto, and you know, it's kind of like who ultimately owns the relationship with the customer. Is it the wallet? And maybe the user experience is you have your wallet, and it gives you really easy access to all these different apps that you want to use. So you would like open your wallet on your phone and kind of use that, or maybe it's the app that the user feels the tight relationship with, and ultimately starting with the app and then having a nice wallet built on top of that, like Uniswap. Is just going to ease the friction of people doing what they already wanted to do, which was use the app. And then that's kind of your Trojan horse way in, which honestly, as I say it out loud, that sounds a lot more, that sounds like that's uh, what it's going to be. Sorry, can we double click into that? Like, are, are you saying that an application would plug into the Uniswap application? So like you have a game that's downloaded or an application that's downloaded and you've got Uniswap that's downloaded all on your phone, all on your home screen. You've pre-funded your Uniswap wallet, uh, your Uniswap app, and other applications would be able to leverage account abstraction via your Uniswap wallet? Or it's maybe that, you know, Uniswap either through expanding horizontally themselves or by part finding close yeah. partners, right? You know, you log in like they are the aggregator essentially, where you 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 are, you know, on the Uniswap wallet home screen because, you know, they started with a with a protocol. They built a brand off of that. Now they have like enough leverage over the user that they'll take him with with them. Mm. Um, and then it's a question of, okay, now we've got you here. How do we keep you here and buying and doing more and more things, right? Um, and then it's like a buy partner build sort of exercise on their end to determine if they like pull in, you know, other apps that are close partners or if they want to like, you know, do more acquisitions or expand horizontally. Everybody wants to be the backhand wallet service provider. It's so yeah. funny. It, it, it's like, it reminds me of, I don't know, maybe like 10, 15 years ago where uh, everybody wanted to build like the dominant JavaScript framework to build web apps in. And it was like, okay, we've got 12 dominant JavaScript. I'm going to build one that's going to supersede all of them. And like, congratulations. Now we have 13 dominant JavaScript. <laughs> but, but I think there's a big opportunity for other wallet as a service companies uh, to compete with Coinbase because there are a lot of companies that are not going to use Coinbase's wallet as a service because they compete with Coinbase in one way or another. Yeah, I, I, I'd say there's no shortage of them in the space right now. Just from having conversations, it's like a very, very hot yeah. area. Um, and I think that there's a spectrum of different kind of um, solutions here with like Coinbase wallet as a service being on one end of the spectrum where basically, you know, you let Coinbase also have the ability to help you recover your keys. So it's almost like this. You know, I could be yeah. wrong. It's like well, Coinbase only gives you the SDK. Like if you want a UI UX on top of it too, like let's say you're Macy's and you want to give someone a, a wallet as a service, but like you don't want just the SDK. You want you want like a nice front out of the box. box. Like you might use Bitsky's wallet as a service or 
magic has a wallet as a service. So it's like, I think it's yeah. how much right. of the stack do you want to control basically? Right, right, yeah. exactly. Even Firebox is getting in, you know, getting into all these games with, with more like retail or like, you know, B2B to C sort of offerings. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the other side of the spectrum, you've got like Biconomy and, um, you know, like OX Pass and a few other really interesting um, providers. Uh, even the Safe SDK is another one um, that are kind of building this, you know, you've got like a suite of tools and bells and whistles that you can add to this, you know, app specific wallet that's all, you know, white labeled for your brand and everything like that. And it's just all happening in the background. Um, yeah, I, I see that's, that's kind of, you know, one of the big, big unlocks of, of, um, of account abstraction is this idea of, you know, every having an account on every app you use without having to spin up this, you know, painful wallet experience. I, I do wonder though, like every single application has an account that's abstracted for you, specifically for you. You have some assets that are in there. Maybe they're NFTs, maybe it's ETH, maybe USDC, it doesn't really matter. Like going to the hundred different applications that you have used at some point and going and retrieving the residual value that's left in those wallets is yeah. going to be painful. Yeah. Like, I, like there is a fragmentation issue where it would be nice, you know, hypothetically, if there was a single wallet and it was a white label service and everybody could just have that be the the one thing and everybody's trying to be that one thing, right? Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, fragmentation becomes an issue. Yeah, it's either, I see two solutions. It's either it's like you have, you know, one EOA that is kind of like your, your, your actual bank account, right? And then you can let, you know, that EOA control these other smart accounts that are like, you know, your Venmo balance equivalent. Um, or you've got a service provider opportunity to aggregate all your accounts on some other app, right? It's like if you used Google to sign in or to create a smart account, like aggregate every you know smart account associated with my Google login, right? Um, right. Like I think I think I kind of understand why. I've heard uh, Fred Wilson actually on a podcast a couple of years ago. He had this little little line that stuck with me, which was he never really could. He had this idea that actually your Google Maps or your Apple Maps should be kind of your uh, your home screen of choice for something like Uber, right? So instead of signing into Uber, the app, you would just log on to Google and then you could like call an Uber to your location or you could order food from your location. But he, he just kind of really, never really played out. And I kind of think the reason for that is like the simplest, the easy, you already have a wallet. It's called your phone. You know, so like when you want to do something like call an Uber or order food, I don't want to log into another app on my phone and then go through that. I just want to be able to go to it the quickest way possible, you know, and I I, I sort of think that's why it hasn't necessarily played out like that. Um, I, I would also say there's just a, such a huge vested interest in Uber maintaining that customer relationship that they would never want to be, you know, a feature in Google Maps. Totally. And that's another good reason why, like none of the, none of the apps that ultimately end up gaining a whole bunch of users and they have funds and traction and all that stuff. They're not going, they're going to be incentivized to not just be a feature in a wallet. Well, and, and, and you could go to, and the equivalent would be, you could say, okay, I want to leverage the Google maps API and we're going to build a big partnership with them. And like, Ooh, Uber, you know, map Google maps wants to actually now have, have us be a feature within their map. It's like, okay, great. We'll just go to Apple maps or Mapbox or any of the other providers and have the same experience. Like. Uh, like competition ultimately will drive this in the direction of I think where you know probably the best it, outcomes will exist and and frankly Uber would not be a service uh, they wouldn't be able to test different applications they wouldn't be able to test different services that they provide 
um, if they weren't their own standalone application. <clears throat> so I, I'd much rather have Uber be a standalone app that you know, versus a feature within you know a Maps application, even though that may be you know in some ways a better user experience. But I think the best user experience is having a sustainable business that can provide car services, um, you know, as a standalone application. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the big difference there is that like Uber can actually, you know, block people from like the only way you can use Uber is through their own app, right? Where I would say like there will be, you know, like an Aave, right? They're like, they can't block people from using Aave, you know, by saying that you can only use it through like the Aave specific app um, or wallet in this case. Um, so it's a little bit more challenging to kind of create those moats, I would say, um, and, and really, you know, own the relationship here because there's so many different entry points to interact with these protocols. I wonder if another challenge too, just from a marketing standpoint is, you know, Netflix doesn't advert when it's advertising or doing its marketing, Netflix doesn't go around and say, Hey, subscribe to Netflix. What it does is it advertises its shows. So you're like, hey, this show looks good. I want to go watch that show. So if you're only a wallet, the way you get people to sign up is, hey, we're a great wallet. Download our wallet. And then me immediately my reaction in my head is like, I don't want to download something else. I already have so many apps on my phone. I'm loaded up with apps here. But if it's a, if you start from the perspective of Uniswap and I'm like, oh, I want to trade. Oh, and they have this wallet. Like, yeah, I'll just do that. You know, and I think it might just be like some, it's eliminating a step instead of adding something else on your, on your I think that's right. I was also going to say, uh, you know, not to like put the cart in front of the horse here, but like, okay, great. You've loaded up your wallet. Uh, you've loaded up your Uniswap account. You put some cash on, you traded some, some coins around like what next, you know, is it, you know, sort of the miles, uh, description of like the app store within Uniswap that has the Uniswap backend for the app, for the wallet. Uh, maybe account abstraction eases the onboarding. Are you able to take those assets off of Uniswap easily and use them in other applications, like from iPhone app to iPhone app? And at, like the, it does beg the question as to and and you know definitely have done my fair share of trading uh, crypto tokens, but you know what next? I think right. is kind of the question that I I get to because that's not like a you know come back every single day sort of right. Activity, right you'll get them there but then you need ways to to, to keep that engagement up and it, i think that that's again yeah i think that's probably expanding horizontally into like complementary products um and whether or not they just you know they like you know compound you can come on this now or whether they decide to actually you know build out these the stuff themselves is will be interesting yep can we talk about the saga solana's phone because actually that kind of segues into or yeah, michael yeah. what are you gonna say we go. Uh, I, was, I was just going to say the, the one thing that I do know that Apple hates is app stores within apps. <laughs> That's yeah. true. That's true. Interesting. Or it's the monopoly. Yeah. But uh, let, let's talk a little bit about Solana. So Solana a little while ago announced Saga, which is going to be their foray into uh, their own Android phone. Um, and it's got kind of a it's sort of the first swing at a crypto friendly mobile stack. Um, so the reason we're talking about this now is they just announced that uh, the saga is going to be available for customers in the United States, EU, UK, Canada, Switzerland, Australia, and New Zealand. You're going to be able to order the phone starting on May 8th. Um, and the whole point basically is you're trying to integrate Web3 into a, a mobile experience, which the majority of users in crypto are mobile, at least as designated by kind of web traffic and, and stuff like that. There hasn't really been a great mobile experience so far. And having being vertically integrated into a phone and a full full stack 
uh, sort of mobile suite that allows you to do things that you couldn't do if you only controlled the software. So there are four kind of pillars to Saga, um, which are, it's got a, a seed. You can, uh, it's like crypto native. You can store your, your seed phrase uh, mobile. There's a vault that's uh, built into the phone. Um, there's a mobile wallet adapter. There's Solana Pay and there's a Solana Dapp store. So kind of in reverse order there, you know, Michael, you're talking about some of the pains, right? That you, that these apps are going to have going through the Apple web store. Well, now Solana has basically tried to take matters into its own hand and they have their own Dapp store that comes native on the, on the phone. Um, they also have Solana Pay, which is kind of exactly as it sounds. So like think about like Apple Pay or Venmo on your phone, how easy it is when you just like use a, which I use all the time now, Apple Pay, I use it almost exclusively, but you just go like ding it at a register or something like that. The theory is you could do that with uh, Solana as well. So I think it sounds super cool. It's definitely like a big, bold swing at something, um, which I always reform people do big, bold swings. I think the the challenge is there's a big difference between being a software organization and then a hardware organization, which is like definitely more capital intensive, more operationally intensive, and uh, definitely folks have, have struggled kind of trying to do that in-house. So I don't know what you guys think. I think it's basically, it'd be very cool if it works. It's definitely going to be a, a challenge as well, though. I, uh, as an anecdote, I was actually having dinner with uh, one of my good friends, actually the, the guy that introduced me in Vance, uh, originally, um, really? last night. And, uh, he has been working, he, he works for a, uh, a large, uh, technology company based in Cupertino. Um, and he has been working on a project for, I think over seven years at this point, he and I were actually interns there in 2011, which is how we met. Um, and, uh, has been working on this hardware project um and working his butt off too for the last uh you know number of years and i i think the thing that you know you you don't really necessarily see um is how hard hardware really is especially when you're going up against behemoths you know like the apples the metas of the world where like when they are doing an r d project their budget for r d is unlimited it is infinite um you know it, it is you know something where there's no like venture backed company that can come close to competing um even meta to a certain extent has had to shut down you know the a lot of the oculus stuff that they were working on when they started reality. to cut costs reality labs exactly um the the whole uh, like all of the things that are you know in the in the components of, of saga i i hope you know, like that their phone is good enough because I completely agree with all the, all the directions that the phone could be taken, but it is just so hard to build good hardware at scale, um, and have that be something that's usable. So such that I want to be carrying around this device to be able to pay for things in person. Um, and, and I think that's just ultimately going to be the biggest challenge, how you can build a, a hardware organization. And you know, the other anecdote I have, um, is, when I was at Snap, um, one of the big things that we were working on was the spectacles. Um, and that was a completely separate team. That was a completely separate operation. Uh, and frankly, they had to be completely separate because you had to run the company completely separately. And it's not something that you can mix and match. You know, it, or it's very incredibly difficult to mix and match hardware and software. And there are probably only, you know, a few examples, uh, Apple being one of them that has done it well. Um, but it is just an exceedingly difficult technical problem as well as organizational issue. So 
I hope the best, frankly. Um, but those are those are the roadblocks that I foresee. Yeah, I I agree with that, and I I also think like it's great that they're taking a big swing at this. Um, I can see the rationale, right? We just talked about like the Apple Store issues, right, and and how that is really you know a potential a dependency risk, right, for the for the growth of like mobile you know crypto apps. Um, and two, if you just look back at you know the apps that have driven the most usage on Solana, for the most part, they're they're gaming, very, you know, retail friendly apps, right? Um, that are that are best, you know, um uh, interacted with on mobile. Uh and I would say like maybe the so you know that that's generally what they're going for. They're they're trying to reduce dependency risk um and and they're trying to make the, you know, these I would say web three retail, you know, focused um apps as 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 good as possible um but i would i i did get the sense that a lot of that activity was coming from asia um when it was at its peak and so i think it is it is interesting that i don't you know i don't see be wondering i would be curious to know how much of like that those users are actually in these countries where this will be available um because you know apple's just got such an enormous moat um in in the u.s at least and you know android's much more common um, in other parts of the world. And so if I were them, I'd be, you know, thinking about going to those users. Um, but I, I think there's a lot to learn. Uh, I think there's a lot to learn from the, the Amazon phone. So in, um, in 2014, Amazon released the, the fire, if you guys remember that, and they were trying to compete with, so it's the iPhone galaxy and the, and the Google pixel. And, um, there, there are two main reasons I think that that failed. The Amazon phone failed first is, um, like Michael was saying, they spent all this time on hardware uh, and like features that were like really flashy and sexy, but didn't users didn't actually want. And I think their big thing that they were really focused on in 2014 was um, was 3D. Uh, and then the se- and and so it turned so that made the phone really expensive. But then once they released it, they realized that no one actually needed needed or wanted those features. Um, and then the second thing is that they um they forked the Android operating system and and they came out with the the Fire OS operating system. And so what that meant was that uh, and and their thesis for doing that is they're like, oh, this is going to create this huge ecosystem of apps and like app builders and developers who want to come build these new experiences on top of the Fire OS uh, ecosystem. But what ended up happening in reality is a year after launching, it was basically just a dead ecosystem and there were no good apps. So like a year, you know, a year after launching, there's still like no Google Maps competitor on the Fire OS. Um, and so I think that like you can make a comparison to the Solana phone so we, we played around with it at the BlockWorks office today. The the like flashy feature comparison could be like, there are all these really cool things you can do in it. So like you, you can take a picture and immediately mint that picture as an NFT. And like, that's something I'm like, oh, that's cool. But like, I don't, I don't really know if people want to do that. Um, so, and there's like a lot of those kind of features in there. And then the operating system too. It's like, yeah, they have their whole DAP store. Um, and that's just like, if, if there end up, being these like use cases on top of Solana and like on top of crypto native, like people build fun things to do uh, on crypto rails, then like, yeah, that booms, but it could also be a, an ecosystem that like there's not much action happening. So, but, so I think it's, a, I think it's, I think that's a decent comparison to make is looking back at the, the flop of the, the fire phone to see what went wrong there. I, I mean, keep in mind, Apple did not open up the app developer store uh or the ability for third-party developers to to come onto the platform for two years 
It was only the, wow. the official wow. Apple. Well, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Okay. It was only the official app, Apple apps that were approved. And then I think in 2009 was uh, was the first year with the three. Oh, you're, saying the app, you're saying Apple, not Amazon. Oh, the Apple. 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 Uh, didn't allow third-party developers onto the onto the App Store until the I think it was the iPhone 3G, which was uh, two years after the first uh, first gen. Um, so you know, the, I, I think there is an element of like you need to prove out the hardware, you need to prove out the use cases. But you know, here here's a different question. You know, what are the probably like most um, what most used applications that you have in crypto right now? Coin like Uni Uniswap or like I, yeah, I'm I'm saying like DApps, but the point is like if they if Solana was to have uh, those DApps as applications that were in their DApp store, as opposed to specifically Solana applications, would that make it more you know useful? I, like my my take is yes. Like the advantage here could be just having an open ecosystem for DApp developers to get into a mobile experience, a mobile mobile hardware. And not necessarily have it be limited to a single blockchain. Uh, that that could be, you know, kind of what I would say I like is, that. is, yeah, I like that. Maybe I, I agree with that. I do too. I also, you know, people don't really talk about it like this a lot. But if you are able to, and by the way, every point taken there, Michael, that it, it's very it's very difficult in terms of to execute right on hardware versus software. But if you are successful in manufacturing a hardware device that people actually want to use really effective distribution uh like people forget like that's how microsoft kind of you know they they cleaned up back in the day doing exactly that and i have heard um you know it's hard for zuck to you know bemoan at all how facebook has played out but i also know that part of the reason why they've invested so much in reality labs is you know there was a strategic decision to be only software for a while and they kind of regretted never having the hardware and the vertical integration there so again it's kind of like if you can execute it it might pay off super well, um, but it also could be a big bet. And yeah, that's the, I don't know. I always, I always just like to support big bets that are taken. I'm rooting for it too. I'm, I'm definitely rooting 100%. for it. 100%. Yeah. 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 Um, guys, I know we talked about this last week, but it does, you know, this is happening in basically one day. We got Chappella coming up. Um, so Michael, I know you had, you know, some initial thoughts there. I don't want to, you know, keep, Getting the audience with stuff we've already talked about, but what are your sort of updated thoughts on Chappella? Uh, my, my updated thoughts are kind of what the narrative is on Twitter right now, which is it, it seems to have gone decently well. There's some talk of uh, it, some of the blocks are, are not, or I don't know what Dathu is going on, um, but it seems like some of the uh, mining pools are, are missing proposals, um, which suggests just some network issues. Um, but I do think the big thing to note is, uh, the withdraw queue is probably not as large as most people suspected. Uh, it was interesting to see that the withdraw queue leading up to the actual hard fork, um, was about half the size of what was signaled for withdraw after the hard fork happened, which just kind of tells me people maybe forgot about it and, and maybe, you know, they saw what happened and they said, oh, now, now I'll signal for withdraw. Um, but yeah, generally it looks like about 150 million of ETH is going to be able to be withdrawn per day. Um, and that will probably take another like 10 to 15 days to process. Um, unclear whether or not that's desired to sell or whether or not it's just movement of assets. Um, <clears throat> one thing that we were talking about was 
uh, tax day is officially five days away from when we're recording this. So, you know, there could be some element of that. Um, interesting timing to have the withdraw queue available. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say um, probably a lot less than what we expected is 10 of the summary um, from our end. Yeah. I don't have many updated thoughts. I, I sort of agree with all that. Yeah, me either. Um, it will be interesting to see just how fast the withdrawal queue kind of returns back to what could be like a, a norm, normal level going forward and, and what that you know, time actually looks like to withdraw. Like, is it, you know, a couple days or is it two weeks? I think that actually does impact like the pricing for, for LSDs. Um, yeah. so, what, sorry, one, one additional point. Um, I did see, uh, uh, some, and this was last night, so the data may have changed, but, uh, it looked like almost 70% of, uh, the assets that were in the withdrawal queue were coming from Kraken specifically, which if you remember, they are required to uh, send back all of that ETH, withdraw all that ETH. Um, so, you know, even the numbers that we're seeing could be overinflated by specific actors in, in situations like that. Yeah. You know, I think I, I, I generally think that crypto underestimates the likelihood of, of bad things happening. So I sort of tend to come into these sorts of events with a, a negative bias. And But I, I do think that people generally kind of overstated the that concern. And, and my, the question that I have to, to you guys is because this was the sort of strong consensus going into this like one or two months ago that we've talked about a lot is there's going to be this initial dip as people unstaked and then there was going to go back up. But my question to you guys is like how much withdrawn ETH do you think people would need to see to be satisfied that withdrawals actually work? Do you know what I mean? Like there's some amount of okay, I actually want to withdraw my stakes so I can pay my taxes or because I haven't had liquidity in a number of years. But also just as likely is, it could be likely that over the first couple of days, you see some amount of ETH successfully able to be withdrawn. The market decides, wow, this has just been de-risked, right? I've seen or I've heard, you know, my friends or this fund that I know and people tweet about it publicly, they withdrew their ETH. So then actually the deposit queue ends up, you know, it ends up netting out sort of positively and people, there isn't really even that period of, of dip um could happen like that too i don't know kraken withdrawing a billion dollars should you know if they can do that then should have pretty good confidence that much that it's doable yeah and so i think we should check back on the numbers in a week from now and see uh see where everything nets out from because i i did see at certain points there were large um uh large deposits as well as you know the consistent withdrawals um and at certain points in time before I think Kraken really got into it, uh, there were actually more uh, deposits in than there were withdrawals. Yeah. Mm. Maybe maybe just as a closing, um, just as a closing story here, there uh, I, I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on this idea of like the U.S. falling behind in crypto. So A16Z kind of put out this this report, um, and you actually saw Avichol Garg over at Electric Capital kind of you know, raise the raise the alarm bell or, or ring the fire alarm or whatever analogy, you know, what have you, that the US in terms of developer activity is actually falling way behind. And for like a good portion of at least my time in crypto, I've kind of heard these calls that the United States is falling behind in crypto, but I haven't really seen much evidence of that. I would say until recently, there are kind of starting to emerge like real signs that that we might actually be in danger of, of losing this race. And it's not like some overwhelming, you know, tsunami of information, but, you know, anecdotally here and there, you know, I see 
less funds that are being, you know, formed or, or domiciled in, in the US. I see more like DAOs, you know, move to be constituted outside of the US. Like more of the interesting projects that are getting funded are based in Asia. It seems like Abu Dhabi and Vara are being like very, very serious about their desire to attract crypto talent. Even Hong Kong seems to be making a real play at crypto, which tacitly I think we can understand to be China saying at least, hey, this is okay in our sort of regulatory sandbox playground. So, you know, I, I, I think yeah. it's definitely still too early to call, but it, it really actually does for the first time, at least since I've been in crypto, seems like it's genuinely shifting yeah. outside of the US. So, so, so Lesh, uh, Rob Leshner came on Empire and one of the things that he mentioned, because he does a lot of investing out of uh, Ro Robot Ventures, is they you know advise founders not to be in the United States anymore. He's like, yeah, it's just not worth it. Um, and he's like, look, if I started Compound all over again, it's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be over from the States again. It, it's part of our evaluation criteria whenever we look at an investment. Wow. Say, say more about that, Michael. So like you'll, so you get like a ding if they're based in the US? It's going to be more difficult. Yes. So wow. you have to understand, you know, what that, uh, implies. Um, you're going to be operating with one, if not both hands tied behind your back and, um, it, regulation by enforcement is you, you, sort of like uh, you, you don't want to say anything because if you're too loud, you might get clipped. Um, so there, there is an element of uh, I, I would say simultaneously, and this is what the 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 um, presentation goes through is like there are actually positive uh, regulatory perspectives that are happening in Singapore, Hong Kong, Eastern or Western Europe. Like th there are places to go where you can have this company operate in the way that you want it to. That are not, you know, out of left field countries that you'd have to move to, and it would be a crazy place to live. The, these are um, very well established, and even some with major tech centers. So that's uh, largely where a lot of the decentralized protocols that we look at for investment, you know, are coming from, just because they recognize the same things that we do. Now, Michael, are, do you notice that these are like most of these teams you talk to are are expats that have like you know left the states or less friendly regimes or they for the most part you know um folks from that from these regions i i would say um <clears throat> not necessarily from those regions in particular but probably from somewhere that then moved to that region to be there um i would also say there's a huge difference between the um the breakdown of the team versus the founding team you know, where are you getting uh, engineering or design or product resources? Um, you know, where where are they from originally um, versus the founding team? You know, that 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 is a difference as well. Um, but yeah, usually it's the founders. Uh, you know, where are you based is a question or are you you know willing to be based elsewhere is a question. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, now, I've always gotten the sense that Solana ecosystem was very Silicon Valley, you know, kind of based. Um, and so, you know, I think Ethereum, we rarely meet in you know, teams that are that are located. Really, is like uh, the legal entity is never like headquartered in the United right. States. Right? No chance. Um, but I'd be curious to know, like, you know, some of these Web two point five teams if they're if they're feeling the heat too. I, with without clarity, and I'm I'm not a lawyer, nor do I pretend to be one. But uh, I, you know, without clarity, it's just it it's not worth it. Um, and we've already started to see some of these enforcement actions. Uh, specifically going after U.S. persons, uh, it doesn't matter whether or not the company is, you know, came in or or what have you. You know, if, if you're, you know, living and, and working in the U.S., they they can find nexus there. Yeah. 
Well, maybe, um, you know, it's, it's definitely not, not over yet, but if there are any regulators or policymakers that are listening to this, I think, I don't want to speak for everyone on this call, but I think I can say we all want this to be a, a US-led industry, right? Like, I would love it if crypto flourished in, in the US, but definitely, it, it's, not, it's not destiny, right, that it, that it has to be based out of here, so... Yeah, and, and last thing I'd say is, um, like, we, we do think that we will get to clarity at some point in the next year or two. There's there's a lot of push uh, in D.C. to at least have some understanding of what the, the regulatory situation will look like. Um, and, you know, this is what Brian Armstrong talks about all the time. It's it, give us a playbook and we'll be able to operate and run with that. Um, so I don't get me wrong. We, we are not hopeful that this continues. I think we just need to know where the black and white lines are and, and stop living in this point of gray. Yeah, agreed. All right, fellas, on that slightly somber note, we can <laughs> we can, we can maybe end it. Um, but this was a good one. And uh, I, I I got a, in my, I was in Texas for this this last week and I got a special t-shirt for Michael and he promised that he's going to wear it uh, next time. <laughs> 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 Which one is the question of where whether or not I'll wear? It? I'll, I'll 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 tell you. I'll read you out the the slightly less the less controversial one because there were there were a couple that were would not be Adam approved. Let's let's put it like that. But it says uh, <laughs> Noah was a conspiracy theorist. Then it rained. Which I, think... <laughs> I actually think that's a pretty funny one. So that one that one might be a better Vance t shirt. But you know, yeah, right. Honestly, Vance with that and the tinfoil hat, I think would be. That'd be a real winner. That could be a nice little get up. But 100%. All right, fellas. 